Next week, we're going to jump back into Philippians. If you're here in the fall, we are working through the book of Philippians. We have chapter four is left. So we're going to do that for the month of January. Then after that, just so you can, you know, look ahead, um, we are going to look at the life and faith of Abraham in the book of Genesis for a bunch of weeks. And that brings us up to Easter already, if you can believe it. So we're already looking, not there yet, but it's coming. Um, so for today, uh, I have the opportunity to uh, sort of preach a one-off sermon and... Um, what I thought would be helpful, I wanted to begin the year on a very practical note. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a uh, topic that is um, very practical and we're going to hear God's wisdom and direction for it. And that topic is uh, financial wealth and investment. We're going to look at the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 uh, verses 17 to 19. And uh, if you're new here with us, if maybe it's your first time back, you might be thinking, ah, oh, see I knew it. The church, all they talk about is money. It's all they're interested in. Uh, you'll be happy to know this is my very first sermon on money. Of course, we're only a few months in, so. But, uh, but really the reason we're doing this is because uh, God cares about all of us. He cares about every part of our life, and so he has wisdom and direction, a loving direction for every area of our life, and finances happen to be one of them. And so it's with that mindset that we're going to look to 1 Timothy. Now on the subject of investment, um, Don and I, my wife Don and I, have a somewhat checkered history. Uh, we have made uh, a grand total of really one major investment in our life. Uh, it was partway into our marriage when we had just uh, bought our first house, and uh, we, we heard, we knew that it was good to make an investment for the future. And so we, you know, said, we're going to do that. Got a financial advisor, asked all the questions you're supposed to ask about risk and, you know, what it's for. It was a, you know, mutual fund. It wasn't some weird dot-com startup thing. It was, you know, a legitimate investment, and everything looked good. So we, we did that, and really, um, on paper, the investment was, there's nothing wrong. It was a solid investment. Uh, the main problem was the timing. So we invested in early 2008, uh, right, 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 before the whole market crashed. And so uh, we very quickly went from, you know, thinking, okay, we've, we've got sort of this nest egg that's going to be building, this thing that's going to benefit us in the future, all of a sudden really became a, a liability. And there's a lot of tension that comes with that, right? A lot of questions as a young married couple. And uh, we started to uh, really be pushed on some of the, the big questions about what we believe about uh, money itself, about God as our provider, uh, about where our hope really lies. These are good questions for us to ask. It wasn't, wasn't fun, but it was good. Um, and these are, in fact, the very kinds of questions that Paul is asking in the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, this is a letter written by Paul to uh, Timothy, who is leading the church in Ephesus. And Paul's counsel for Timothy is really that he, he wants to help Timothy lead the church to grow in godliness. That, that's the big idea, that he wants them to grow in every good way. In fact, uh, one of the key verses is uh, verse uh, 4-8 in 1 Timothy, which says this, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So really what's being talked about here is not a recipe for salvation. This is speaking to those who already know Christ. They already have faith in Jesus. But uh, God's plan for them is to grow in that. We call this sanctification. And so for those who are already saved, uh, to be godly means that you grow in your relationship with the Lord. In fact, you become more and more like Jesus. So practically speaking, uh, Paul is trying to address what does it look like for a believer to grow in godliness in all areas of their life. And what we find in the book of 1 Timothy in regards to wealth is that initially it seems that having money can be a hindrance to godliness. 
I say this because in verse uh, 10 of chapter 4, you may know this verse, it says this, I'll just read it. It says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And there we see that there can be real danger in loving money more than other things in your life, especially more than God. Uh, He's speaking really about the danger of those who who don't have much money and and are putting their hopes in getting more of it wrapping their hearts up in the pursuit of, of finances and wealth. And what he's saying is if you, if you live your life that way, it is going to be difficult for you to really grow in godliness. So up to this point in the book, uh, it seems that if you want to be godly, um, what you really need is contentment, even if you don't have much money. But there were people in the uh, Ephesian church, see, they were Christians, but they already had some money. They weren't seeking it, they, they already had it. See, the Ephesian, uh, Ephesus was a big town. Uh, there was lots of commerce and finance. And as the gospel was preached, all kinds of people were coming uh, to Christ. And so as the letter, that's what would have happened, uh, 1 Timothy would have been read to the church, uh, there would have been people there who were probably thinking, I don't, I don't know if I love money, but I, I think I have a lot of it. Or, or I'm comfortable. I mean, I have a business that's been growing and doing well. I've, I've you know, uh, taken on this trade. My family set me up well. So, so what about me? Like, I, as I, I don't think I love money, but I have it. What should I do with it? Do I have to give it all away? Like, if I want to be godly and I want to still be a Christian, how, how does that work? And so Paul's words in the last chapter of Timothy are directly to those who have some wealth and are Christians. And he's trying to help them to understand how do you pursue godliness with the wealth that you have? And by extension, uh, these words, I think, are especially applicable to us. For we are some of the richest people in history and some of the richest people in the world. I know there aren't a ton of, I saw a couple of Bentleys out in the parking lot, but not a ton. Um, But still, comparatively speaking, uh, our lifestyle is one that is far beyond everything that would have been in Ephesus and, and most of the world. And so these words are also to us. How is it that we can be rich, comparatively speaking, but also godly? So with that in mind, that God has wisdom for us because he loves us and he wants to shape every aspect of our life, we're going to look into 1 Timothy and then see what God has for us this morning. So I'm going to begin in verse 17, which says this, As for the rich of this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's God's word to us this morning. Uh, Let's pause in prayer. Uh, Lord God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, God, that you care enough about us, Lord, that you want to speak into every uh, area of our life. Uh, God, I pray that uh, in this time you would help us to have ears to hear what you want to say. I pray, God, that we would have soft hearts to examine our own lives. And I pray especially, Lord, that we would see uh, your generosity, your grace in our lives. And please help me to speak with words that would do what you want to have happen in the lives of your people today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So with uh, that question really as kind of the header, how is it that we can be rich and godly, uh, we find that there are actually four uh, instructions, four points of direction for us uh, as a people. And the first is simply this, we are to be humble. Uh, You see this right away in verse 17. Uh, It's put actually in the negative form. Uh, Paul says, charge them not to be haughty. This is the rich. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on riches. 
which could really be paraphrased as, hey, hey, you people who have a certain amount of wealth, just because you have a nice car or a nice chariot or a whole herd of oxen or whatever they had back then, that doesn't mean that you're anything special. doesn't mean you're better than anyone else. And in fact, you really should, shouldn't trust in those things because even millionaires go bankrupt. Uh, the issue at its core is one of pride. Self-focus, self-contentment, self-reliance, uh, pride. We come by it naturally, regardless of our income. It's part of our human nature to look to our own wisdom rather than to the wisdom of God. The thing is, for those who are rich, it's even easier to believe that you have everything you need in of yourself. It's not that people who struggle with money um, don't have pride, but when you struggle to make ends meet, if you've been in that situation where, where you're just thinking, oh, I don't, I'm not sure how we're going to make it through the week, I'm not sure how we're going to pay that bill that I know is coming up, what, what naturally happens is that you find yourself praying more. Right? You, you realize in of yourself, I, I can't make it. I can't do it. I'm doing everything I can, and it's not enough. Lord, Lord, please, I need you. This is a very helpful pressure that is on the lives of those who struggle financially. Those who are well off don't have that pressure. Right? There's, there's a lack of pressure, and that lack of pressure can actually um, allow us to overinflate, if you know what I mean. A picture of this, a visual, this might help you, is that, um, have you ever seen uh, those weird-looking fish that are at the bottom of the ocean, and God built them to endure, they flourish in incredible pressure. You know, they're swimming around, they got things sticking out everywhere, they're transparent, they're weird. Have you seen what happens when you bring them to the surface? It's disgusting, they explode. They explode because they're used to having pressure on them. If you're young here, I encourage you to ask your parents, then go on YouTube and look at it. It's disgusting. It's great. So what's the problem? The problem is that the lack of pressure, it, it destroys them. And the truth of the matter is that for those who have a comfortable lifestyle, there can also be a lack of pressure that can be destructive. If you have a home that's paid off or nearly there, if you have a decent job that is stable, if you have a car and a house full of stuff, you have an insurance policy in case it all burns down, you have a holiday that you're already looking forward to, all of that is a lifestyle that is comfortable and what can tend to happen is that we inflate. We don't tend to be on our knees as much because we feel like we have everything we need because of the lifestyle that we've been able to purchase. The real problem is that we tend to forget who we are in relation to God. We have a false sense of superiority. This is destructive for us and destructive for the people in our lives. And the Bible continually warns us against this, this false sense of superiority. Here are a couple of verses that uh, really uh, makes clear God's attitude towards those who have anything. That's us. So 1 Corinthian, uh, Corinthians 4.7, uh, God says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So really what the Word of God says over and over again is you are to be humble. You are to be humble because every good thing that you have is from God. Not just our salvation, not just our spiritual gift. We know that that is a, a blessing from God, but even the material things that we possess, everything is God's blessing. None of it that we deserve. And so what this should do in our lives is create a sense of, of humility, of thankfulness to God, which goes against our natural tendency towards superiority. Uh, and what this really should do is not just be an attitude of the heart, it should begin there, 
but it should reveal itself in our lives. Uh, there was a, a family that I got to know growing up that I think demonstrated this fairly well. Um, this uh, was a family that I got to know in my teens. In particular, I got to know uh, the daughter of the family. And um, it was a family that, you know, I knew seemed to be doing fairly well. They had a pool, so that, you know, said, oh, they seem to have some money. It was a pool, it's not California. So, um, so that was what I thought of them. But as we, you know, in our young adult years, as I talked to the daughter, uh, she said that uh, she was actually very shocked to learn, uh, kind of later on in her teen years, that her family was actually very, very well off. Like, they had millions of dollars, and she had no idea. Uh, at a certain point, their family business started to do very, very well, and her parents kind of had a decision to make. Were they going to kind of sell the, the house and the land and go and find something much bigger that they could afford? Were they going to start to take multiple trips a year and, and buy cars that they could afford or not? And they decided that that just didn't sit well with them, that they wanted instead to be able to raise their kids uh, to value money. And they were concerned that if they did that, it would be difficult. Also, they wanted to stay connected with their church and their friends. And so they lived well, but not opulently. They, they took trips but not like multiple times a year. They had cars, but they didn't, they didn't really flaunt them. They made their lives about things that were more important and more substantial than the stuff they could buy. So much so that their kids really didn't even know how much money they had. And I think this, this is the kind of heart that Paul is pushing us towards. Instead of finding our wealth, uh, our identity in our wealth, we find our identity in, in who we are in Christ. And instead of getting puffed up because of the things we have, we remember that everything is a blessing from God. We really look to God for a sense of self. And we live a life that is humble, recognizing that we don't really deserve any of it. It is all by his grace. So we are to be humble. And you can imagine that if this was being read to that church in Ephesus, that those who are rich, the rich Christians there, they would have said, see, I knew it. I knew it. I got to get rid of my stuff. See, I got to be humble. I got to give everything away. All right, I guess I'll get rid of the chariot and the, the vineyard and the fluffy pillows because clearly I can't be humble and have any money. I mean, someone came to Jesus and asked him, how do I enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, well, you got to give everything away. So I guess I got to give everything away. There's a camel, there's an eye of a needle. It doesn't, doesn't work. But see, the rest of the verse would have spoken against that. If you look at the rest of verse 17, look what it says. It says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So we're, we're supposed to enjoy stuff too, though. That's our second thing. We are to enjoy our wealth. This is very clear throughout all of scripture that God has given us gifts because the thing about gifts is you're supposed to enjoy them. No one gives a gift that you're not supposed to enjoy. Look at Ecclesiastes 5.19. Uh, it says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. You give a gift because you want the person to enjoy it. We just had Christmas, right? Christmas, at probably most of our households, there were presents under the tree. At the Glezos household, uh, we have... A bunch of kids, and so there were a bunch of presents under the tree. Uh, in our household, there's one gift that rises above all the others, and that is the gift of Lego. And uh, the reason for that is because uh, God uh, spoke down from heaven to that guy in Denmark and said, you shall create the best toy that ever has been made, and it shall be called Lego. And he made it. And so we, we love Lego. We have, we have a ton of Lego. I love giving Lego. Uh, early on in the fall, we always get the Lego catalog, and we're looking for you know, what the, you know, they want, what set they want. The new Star Wars movie's coming out. Do you want this set? It's, it occupies a lot of our time. Why? Because it's exciting. Because it's the best gift that can be given. In heaven, we're all going to be playing with it. So, 
Throughout, um, throughout the fall, uh, this is on our mind. And for us, we try to spread out the Christmas gift purchasing uh, for the fall. And so by Christmas morning, uh, I'm very excited. I'm very excited that there's gifts under the tree that they are going to love. And so uh, what happens Christmas morning? Same thing as you, faithful Christian families. You come downstairs. What do you do? You do your Christmas devotion. You read through redemptive history, right, to make sure we know from Genesis. We take a few hours to work through the text, make sure that we know what this is all about. Then we go out into the community. We do some acts of service, right? It's not about the gifts or doing all the good things. But then finally, we come back. It's around 2, 2 p.m. in the afternoon, and we are ready to open the gifts. And everyone's excited. And when the kids open them, I mean, they rip off the paper. They're so fantastically excited. Now imagine what would happen if one of my boys ripped it open, looked at it, and then threw it away and just ran into my arms and said, Dad, thank you for the gift, but I just want to spend this day with you. <laughs> Say, Caleb, that's, that's great. I mean, we're going to do that, but I, I got you a gift. I know, I know, Dad, I know, but I just want to, can we just sit, can I just stare into your eyes and just relationally, <laughs> can we just be together? Because that is my greatest joy. I would say, Yes, that's also my, that's almost my greatest joy, but, but I got you a gift because I wanted you to enjoy it. I want you to, see, here's the thing. We, we know from what Paul just said that our greatest hope and treasure is in Jesus. Yes, absolutely. That's what Paul, he just finished saying that, but there's this sweet spot of godliness where you are able to humbly, graciously, but genuinely enjoy the gifts that he's given us and not just the spiritual gifts, all of the things in our lives. There's a pastor friend of mine who's fond of saying, uh, for Christians, we should be known for at least a couple things, fasting and feasting. Fasting, as we, we've just talked about, is some, you see a pattern of it throughout the Bible. We're, we're going to do that on January 11th, where we abstain from certain things. Why? Because our life isn't about those things. Our life is about God. And so there are rhythms, you know, leading up to Easter through Lent, different times where we abstain. And really what we're saying is we, we have these things, but that's not where our hope lies. We can still be joyful and content, even if we're not having whatever food we're going to have. That's a good thing. Some people, though, make that the mark of godliness. That, that to the extent that you give up the things on this earth, that then you are really, really godly. And that's not what we see in the Bible. Because we also see a rhythm of feasting. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a whole bunch of feasts. There's feasts of trumpets. There's Passover. There's a feast of fruits. There's a feast of booths where they would build these booths and they would live in them. And, it was, and all of these things, they cost money. They really feasted. They would have to buy food and lambs and slaughter different animals. It was amazing feast. They would save up for these feasts. That should be the rhythm of our lives as well. Not that we just spend for spending's sake, but that when there's a time to celebrate, when we want to show love, when we want to remember who God is, we should really celebrate. So for Christmas, like if you went to Costco and got the biggest spiral ham that you could find because there's tons of people coming over, that's great. That's what God wants for us to do, to take some of the wealth that he's given us and to genuinely throw a party. And it doesn't just have to be at Christmas and Easter. There can be many other opportunities where as a community we say, we are going to celebrate. We're going to throw a party. We're going to have a good time. Even the, the material things that we have an opportunity to buy can be an opportunity to glorify God. By that I mean, it, I think it might be godly to get a good pair of shoes instead of going to Walmart and getting shoes that are going to fall apart in a week. Because we've done that. And it brings no glory to God when the kids are wearing them and the next day the tongue falls off them. Okay, I apologize if you make shoes for Walmart. I'm just saying that it's, it's okay. It's a good thing for us to genuinely enjoy the skills that God has given people to create certain things, the wealth that we have to be able. There's a, a real sense in which you can enjoy something and say, Lord, I'm so thankful for my taste buds. 
I'm thankful, God, that you made me and that you made cheesecake and that you put the two together. It's fantastic. In that, what are we doing? We're saying, Lord, thank you for what you've given me. I glorify you, Lord, because you are the giver of good gifts. And in that, we can rejoice. In that, we can grow in our godliness. This is part of how we do that. But it's only part of how we do that. We are to be humble. We are to enjoy our wealth. But also, we are to share our wealth. We see this in verse 18. Verse 18 says, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So how is it that we can share our wealth? Uh, One of the things I love about the Bible is that uh, very often there are terms that we use frequently that are uh, clarified, they're sort of redefined. And in this text, we see that the term uh, rich is, is redefined. So from a worldly point of view, to be rich is based on what you have. But from a biblical point of view, we see that to be rich is based on what you do with what you have. And so we're told in this text that we are to be rich in good works, that that is the true nature of wealth, that a godly man or a godly woman is so shaped by the generosity of God uh, that they don't hoard their money, they don't flaunt it, they don't hope in it, uh, they enjoy it, yes, but they also seek to do good with it. And they seek to share it in a way, invest it in a way that it will really last forever, that it will build into eternity. Now, the thing about sharing, though, it says we are to be ready to share. There's, there's two kinds of sharing. Uh, You see this uh, with young kids, with preschoolers. In a preschool, uh, there's always the one kid that uh, gets all the blocks, right? He's got them all. He's got his block hoard. And uh, he doesn't want to let anyone else play with the blocks, obviously, because he's got all of them. And the teacher will come over and say, Jimmy, you need to share your blocks because sharing is caring. That's what it is. And so uh, Jimmy, sometimes he will share in two different ways. There's reluctant sharing which is where the teacher has to come and pry the blocks from Timmy's sweaty little hands. He's like, I don't want to give them up and then finally share them. Or, miracle of miracles, there's there's generous sharing where where Jimmy says, I invite all of the preschoolers to come and enjoy my block bounty, right? I I give abundantly from my block resources. And it's amazing. The teacher writes home, I don't know what happened today. It was amazing. He shared. The same thing is true for us. That we know, I think, that we should share. We know sharing is caring. But how we do that, there's sometimes a reluctance in our heart. And the reason for that is that there's a tendency in us to love the things that we have rather than the people in our lives. And so when when the opportunity comes to share, sometimes it's it's really hard to be generous with some of the things that we have. Uh, There are certain things, perhaps, that we're happy to share Right? If you want to borrow my bicycle, I have one for you. It's the rusty one in the garage. You can have it. I don't, you don't even have to bring it back. Uh, that tends to be sometimes our, our heart and our mind because uh, we put a lot of value in the stuff that we have. And, and that can ruin relationships. That can miss opportunities to be a blessing to others. I remember another uh, family, a friend of mine sort of talked about her family and said that sadly, um, she's, it was difficult for her to bring her kids over to her mother's house. Because at her mother's house, uh, her mom was so caught up in her house being pristine all the time. And when the kids were very young, they would come over and they would break stuff. But what it meant was that whenever they walked through the door, her mom would just be on the kids all the time. Don't touch that. Don't touch the walls. Watch out for that figure. It was a tense environment. Why? Because sadly, this grandma, she couldn't get past the fact that some of her things might get broken so that she could really love her grandkids. And this sometimes is the disposition of her heart. Paul says, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. So how is it that we can get to that place 
where we are genuinely and generously willing to share, ready to show love to the people around us. Well, I think it's helpful for us to remember the generosity of God again. It again stems from that attitude of humility, that, that God has loved us greatly. In the story of Christmas, we see what happens when God loves us, that Jesus, who was and is the wealthiest individual in, in all of history, he gave up that so that he could come and be born as a human being. And he could live, and he lived very frugally. He didn't have much. In fact, he endured all of the, the things that humans endure that he didn't need to endure. He, he gave all of himself to the point of death on a cross. That was the extent of his generosity and love and grace so that we might enjoy life in all of the abundance of it. So when we reflect on that, we recognize that the wealth we have is yet another opportunity to show that kind of love to the people around us. And as we, as we think about God's love for us, it does something in our hearts. If we're generally open to that and really recognize the extent to which God loves us and was generous, then it helps us to see the people around us differently. So this uh, starts with the attitude of humility. It, it, it leads to a desire to want to share, be ready to share. But practically speaking, how is it that we can put ourselves in a position where we actually are ready to share? When an opportunity comes up or when we actually can give and help people who are in need? Well, I think uh, this is like every other financial endeavor, which means it begins with a budget, right? There, there are people that I've talked to uh, over the years and they've said something like, you know, Matt, I, I, we would really love to, to give more, to help with the needs of the people around us. We'd really love to tithe more regularly, but it, it's just a tough spot for us financially. And many of the times, fair enough. But sometimes I've had an opportunity to press into that and uh, very often uh, people in that situation don't have a budget, meaning they, they don't really know how much money is coming in. They don't know how much money is coming out. And so it's no surprise that they find themselves uh, not ready to share when the opportunity uh, presents itself. This is especially true for young people. Uh, young people, again, no offense, but I think it's true that very often young people will uh, spend whatever they have until they're out. Then they will eat ramen noodles for days and days until they get another paycheck. And then, ah, we can buy meat and vegetables again. That's fantastic. Uh, this sometimes, so the cycle is one of dealing with immediate needs rather than taking a step back and trying to spend money based on your convictions. Uh, see, budgeting isn't primarily about spending too much. It's part of that. But really, it's a process of saying, you know, what is really important to me? I only have so much money. I, I want to spend it in a way that reflects what is what's really important to me. And so it's a process of asking questions, right? Good questions like, uh, is being generous towards others important to you? Is that something that you, you want to be in your life, that you're able to share in that way? And if so, are you setting yourself up so that you will, you will have a portion of your income to be able to share? Uh, what about tithing? Is that something that's important to you? Is it important to honor God with a portion of your paycheck each month or two weeks or, or whatever? Is that something that you feel is a conviction biblically when you read the Bible? And if so, are you, are you setting up your life to reflect that? Uh, as a married couple, uh, these are good conversations to have, especially if you're young married. Um, I've done some work with um, sort of pre-marriage counseling, and very often as you approach marriage, there are different uh, spending priorities, 
I would say, right? Not better or worse, but someone will think that it's you know, worthwhile to spend this much on clothes. Someone else will think it's, we should eat out every night. Uh, when you put the two together, there's not enough money to cover all of the, the wants, and that can bring tension. Uh, even in terms of giving, some, someone will be very generous with their giving, another person not so much. It's so helpful to get together and talk about, you know, as a couple, what is really important to us, especially before uh, you get yourself into a mortgage or a car loan where all of a sudden you limit your financial options. So budgeting is about uh, looking at what we care about. As a single person, same thing. Uh, you, can, you should look at what you're spending. Uh, your future spouse will be very glad that you did that at some point and that you don't just, on a second date, say, yeah, I'm not really sure what I spend. I don't have any money right now, I know that, but I hope to in the future. That doesn't really bode well, right? Go to people that you know who seem financially stable and godly and say, you know, what, what do you think about this? This is how much I'm saving. This is how much I'm I'm giving. See, godliness means making choices about what's truly important and then filling in the rest. And it isn't just for those who are, are in a sense, struggling to make sure they have some to give. It's even for those who are established financially. It's just there that uh, the budgeting process, the questions will probably be a little different. Uh, Instead of budgeting to make sure you have a little bit to give each month, you might be asking the question, you know, what do I really need to live on? What, what do I really need to be comfortable? Is there a point where I'm just building bigger barns? Is that really what God wants for me? What would it look like for me to dedicate a greater percentage of my income towards uh, the things of God? Towards his church, towards his work all over the world? See, this is godly living for the rich. It's a heart and mind that says, Lord, I thank you for everything you've given me. Lord, Lord, please now, you've given me so much, would you please also give me the courage and the humility to be able to give sacrificially and generously? And this is both uh, specific and universal. By that I mean that for each one of us, the percentages, the amounts, they're all going to be different. Our circumstances are different, our incomes are different. That's all going to be very individual. But the universal truth is that there's one kind of heart that leads to this kind of life. It's a heart that trusts God, it's a heart that enjoys his gifts, and it's a heart that wants to bless others. And when you live out of that kind of a heart, recognizing all that you have from God, what we see in our text, the last thing we see is that as we do this, we are actually making an investment in something that is eternal. Now look at verse 19. It says, as you do all these things, it says, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so this is the fourth thing we see. We are to invest wisely. The thing about investments is that timing is always key. It's very clear in our investment, timing was horrible. And so it very quickly tanked, bad investment. But there are other investments that start off very slow. They're very gradual. But if you stick with them in time, there will be massive returns. Interestingly, at the very same time, actually just a couple years before I made my investment, there was someone else who made an investment. His name was Michael Burry. Uh, he was the head or managed, hedge fund manager for Scion Capital. And he had looked at the U.S. housing market very closely, and he determined that there was some uh, inherent instability there. And so what he did with all the funds he managed is he poured in hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars betting against the, using ho- uh, the U.S. housing market. Everyone thought he was crazy. 
In fact, uh, most of his investors, they got really, really upset and they wanted to pull out all their money because this was actually costing them money. There, there was a couple of years where nothing happened. In fact, it cost them money because of the way the whole deal was worked out. People sued him. They wanted to pull the money out. The whole company almost went bankrupt. But then 2008 came along and the housing bubble that he saw, it actually finally burst. So when our mutual funds tanked, his investments and all the clients that stayed with him, it rose by 500%. So they ended up profiting $700 million in a year when most people, uh, all their funds went down. So what was the issue? The issue was timing, and the issue was knowing your market fundamentals. Michael Burry, he saw the market very clearly, and he invested wisely, and those who hung on received amazing dividends. And what Paul is saying in our text is, is yes, you should invest like that. You should have an eye to the future. You should be looking not just for today, but for what will be profitable in the future. But, for, but by future, he doesn't just mean this life. Paul was talking about the life to come. See, that investment was probably one of the best ones in financial history. But if it's only good for this life and not for the life to come, it's not ultimately profitable. And what Paul is saying is that as we look for, to make investments, we want to look into eternity. Paul was blessed with an ability, just he lived kind of on the brink of eternity his whole life, his whole ministry, since he came to Christ. And so he was able to see life much more clearly. He saw what was worthwhile and what seemed to be a good investment, but in fact was not. He asked some very good questions. The questions like, which is more valuable, to be rich in this life or in the life to come? Is it better to accumulate treasure on earth or in heaven? To grab hold of this meager earthly life or to grab hold of that which is truly life? A life rooted in the saving work of Jesus. A life that transforms us from hoping in the temporary things of this world to hoping in God himself. See, the pattern we see in the Bible is that those who truly know Jesus, they see their wealth differently. It's not that money is bad. It's not that we need to give it all away. But all of a sudden, their wealth ceases to be a source of pride and confidence and security and instead becomes a fantastic opportunity to pursue Jesus, a wonderful opportunity to show love and to grow in godliness. See, my hope for us uh, as a church is that we look to this year to come and we say, Lord, how is it that you would have us invest? We've been greatly blessed as individuals and as a church. I mean, as a church, we've been given this building. We have this little plot of land. We have an opportunity to make inroads into our community, but it's going to take investment. It's going to take the continued investment of all of us who are serving and giving and, and being part of it. And why would we do that? Why would we give of ourselves to such an extent? It's because we are hopeful that God will do what he says he loves to do, which is to save the lost, which is to bring more and more people into eternity so that in time, not right away perhaps, but in time, we will see the fruits of our labors. That, that as a church and as individuals, as we respond to the opportunities we have to show love and to be generous and to give, that maybe years down the road, we will see what God has done with those efforts and we will be greatly blessed as we've seen how God has been fruitful in the lives of others. So my hope is on this New Year's Eve day is that as we look ahead to the future, that each one of us can go away thinking, Lord, how is it that you would have me live this year? What opportunities are you going to bring my way? God, I want to be ready for them. Lord, would you right now help me to have a heart that is ready to give, ready to share, that is humble in the sense that I know, Lord, that you've given me everything and that you are expecting good things from me because of the, the wealth you've given me. 
So in that, there's going to be conversation. I hope there will be. I hope in your own mind, if, if you're here and you're married, that you would go from here and really talk about the practical ways in which you live, the practical ways in which you invest the wealth that God has given you. And in all of that, we expect great glory for God and great help for ourselves. So let's pray, and then we're going to respond. Lord God, thank you so much for your love and for your grace. I thank you, God, that we've seen very clearly, Lord, that you call us to enjoy the wealth that we have, but also be a blessing with it. Lord, you are so good to us. I pray, God, that we would uh, be mindful of this fact, Lord, that we would recognize that the spiritual gifts you give us are also accompanied by material gifts. And Lord, I pray that those of us who um, are struggling right now financially, Lord, would indeed hope uh, fully in you. And Lord, that you would bring comfort and help and provision. I pray also, Lord, for those of us who are comfortable right now financially. God, would you give us a heart to share with those who are in need? Would you give us, Lord, a heart to enjoy genuinely the things you've given us? And I pray, God, for us as a church, Lord, that you would uh, help us to be faithful, uh, to be able to invest in our community, to show love, uh, to be generous, to be gracious. And Lord, above all, to, to work towards the end of more and more people coming to know you and having an eternity of joy ahead of them. Thank you, God, for this time. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.